Terry and Inika are helping out with the nursery this morning. And we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. Uh, you can open up your Bible. Uh, it will be on the screen. If you're unfamiliar with where to find it in the Bible, you can kind of go right to the front. And most Bibles have an index. And you can just look for 1 Corinthians. It's the first letter written to the Corinthians. Um, we're returning to this series after kind of a summer off. I, I normally, sometimes I, I plow through a series over a summer. But this summer, I felt like I wanted to talk through some different things, give other people some voices that really wanted to take advantage of Rick being here and have a few Sundays uh, off, had Deanna speaking and different people. But this is sort of my bread and butter as a teacher. I like to move through entire books of the Bible. Some people will just teach on key verses or key chapters, and that's not bad, but it limits, I think, um, what we're exposed to over five or ten years. And I think it's important to be studying all of the scripture, not just the stuff that maybe appeals to me as a pastor, because I'll be honest with you, there is nothing about today's passage that I would instinctively be drawn to. You could probably have me preach, preach topically for 50 years, and I'm not sure if I would ever land on this. I open my Bible on Sunday night, I read through and pray about the passage a few times, and it was like, womp womp. I was like, oh, okay, I don't really know where to go. There was no sparks going off, no fireworks. And by last night, I barely go to sleep. I was so excited. So that's what can happen when you stay in the text. So we are returning to this letter written by the Apostle Paul, who is an enemy of the church, is converted by Jesus, takes a few years to study, recalibrate his worldview, and then begins planting churches all over the known world. This is a letter written about five years after he plants a church in Corinth, so about 50 AD, about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul establishes a church in Corinth. And now he's writing a letter because five years later, the church is in just a massive, massive mess. The, the, uh, the letter is really about calling the Corinthians to understand and live into their calling as Christians. They had very mixed, confused, distorted ideas of what it meant to be spiritual, what it meant to be following Jesus, what it meant to be saved and forgiven, and what kind of life that allowed them to live. And Paul is saying, you have been sanctified. You've been set apart. God has chosen you to be a light in the darkness. And this is what that looks like. And he's trying to put handles on that so that it doesn't remain abstract. And this is not an easy calling because Corinth is one of the most cosmopolitan, powerful, uh, pagan cities in the ancient world. It's famous for being a center of religion. There was tons of temples, including the temple of um, Aphrodite and the uh, Acrocorinth, a massive kind of mountain structure. It was a hub of commerce because of the Isthmus. We talked about that earlier on in the series. It was a center of education where sophists would kind of flex their philosophical acumen and do lots of um, public presentations about the latest ideas. It was a place of entertainment. The Isthmian Games were second only to the Olympic Games, and they were done in honor of the god Poseidon, and they were a massive draw. Uh, and just like massive events like the Super Bowl today, a draw for uh, you know um, gambling, all kinds of vices that you can imagine that kind of come with uh, people congregating uh, who are powerful and have money and have status. 
It was only established as a city or reestablished uh, about 100 years before this. So about 46 BC, Corinth gets established. And within 100 years, it becomes one of the most prominent cities in the ancient world. It was a massive infrastructure investment by the Romans. And it was a place that for better and for worse, all of the values of Corinthian society, of Roman society, the good values, there were some good ones, so the, the bad ones and the really ugly ones, they were all dialed up to 11. So it was sort of symbolic of this is the glory of Rome. And so as the gospel comes to Corinth, and remember, no one has heard this good news before, it takes root. People begin turning their lives over to Jesus. They become convicted that Jesus is God in the flesh, come to offer us good news, salvation from sin, salvation from sin's power and penalty into a new way of life. They begin turning their lives over. They begin connecting with each other in small groups and praying together and discerning what does it mean to serve Jesus in this very, very pagan, um, immoral destructive, in a lot of ways, anti-life and very anti-Christ culture. The church grows. The church is trying to figure out how to reorder its priorities around Jesus. But um, if you, like the Corinthians, have ever turned to Christ after two, three, four decades, steeped in a very anti-Christ or worldly pattern of living, you can probably empathize with them that the maturity did not come quickly. It wasn't like I accepted Jesus, started going to, going to church, which was in people's homes, and it was like, bam, all of a sudden I'm you know, uh, spiritually fit and strong and mature within a year or two. Five years later, Paul has to write a letter because there is enormous systemic dysfunction and patterns which are destructive. And so most of Paul's letters, and 1 Corinthians is no different, they are addressed to those who are trying to connect what they have experienced and believe about Jesus into everyday situations that they're facing. And so here's a list of all of the issues in the church that Paul at some point has to address. And I think pastorally what's helpful about this list is that um, it can rescue us from a very romantic view of what the early church must have been like. Wouldn't it have been amazing to be part of the early church? Uh, I mean, yes and no. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have been a part of a church where all of these issues are happening concurrently, but that's what it was like in Corinth. It was a nest of trouble and dysfunction. And so in chapter 6, Paul confronts the church on how they've been settling disputes. Um, and this has been instructive. This has been a very instructive text, not just for the Corinthians, but for Christians for 2,000 years. It's been a core text on how do we deal with relational friction and conflict within the church. And as we move into chapter 6, we're seeing Paul bring some teaching and a pretty strong rebuke pretty strong pushback to the way that they've been handling um, disagreements uh, and in some cases, you know, kind of injuring each other. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 today, and this will be kind of like a two-part message because I think uh, this is really, really practical for us, even though maybe the issues of lawsuits for some of us might seem a little bit um, removed. 
So this is Paul writing, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. And the fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? But instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Here are some cultural factors at play that just help to flesh out what's happening. Roman legal system is very complex. You would go into a legal proceeding which was held in a public place. In Corinth, it's right in the middle of the marketplace. And you would, um, I'll show a picture of this later, but you would stand in front of a judgment seat, it's called a bema seat, and you would state your case to the proconsul. Person A states their case, person B states their case, and you had lots of time. I mean, you could take hours and hours to state your case and to say, you know what, I hired this person to do this, but they didn't really do a good job, I shouldn't have to pay them. And the other person says, actually, you do have to pay me because you weren't really clear on the instructions, so you do owe me money, I don't mind not finishing the job, and would go back and forth. But it was a system that favored those of a higher social class, who carried more social status, who were wealthier, and maybe more importantly, because of the um, influence of Greek philosophy and sophistry, in Corinth, it favored people who were gifted at public speaking and oration because they weren't lawyers. You defended yourself. So right away, um, you can see that the system is tilted, right? I'm, I, I don't know how to, I'm, I'm trying not to frame this as a way that is, um, that is arrogant, but I, I think it's truthful. If any of you had to take me to court and it was just mano a mano, I'm very confident in my ability to bury you. <laughs> maybe it's not, maybe I couldn't, maybe I wouldn't. And God forbid we ever are in a situation where we actually have to do that. But I was thinking about that, right? Like I was thinking about... Um, you know, I think about like my good friend, you know, Denis, right? Denis has grown so much in public speaking and standing in front of people. That's some, something that for him by temperament is challenging and he has grown. But Lydia, can you imagine a public setting where there was like money and reputation on the line and it's Jeff versus Denis? It's, it, it's not a fair fight because my job is to speak and I could just talk circles. And I think Denis, because he has such a gentle spirit, there would be a part of him that would say, you know what? This isn't worth it. And so in the ancient Roman world, 
there was it, it, it wasn't always it was very often not a fair fight and people who were poor or of lower status or weren't educated they didn't have the ability to properly defend themselves and so even in these courts of justice there was a lot of injustice and these were not for criminal charges but we would think of it as like small claims court and so there was a lot of exploitation and it was um, the fact that believers were taking each other to court, that wasn't unusual because Rome was incredibly litigious. This is the way you got even. This is the way you protected your honor. Honor and status were very important in an ancient Roman context. And so when someone slights you or even infers you haven't been acting with honor or integrity, not following through in your commitments, you bring them to the bema seat. You bring them before a proconsul and say, I want to clear my reputation. And I do that by establishing that I am in the right. And so one person walks away shamed and one person walks away with honor. And Paul hears that this is happening within the church. There's conflicts, there's disputes, and they're not minor, like they're significant. But what the church is doing is saying, you know what? We're going to bring this into the public sphere, into the Roman legal courts and have them settle it. Before we get into some of the practical applications, can you see why this would be a passage, why it would be important for us to study even today? Like if someone said, okay, now that I know a little bit about that, why is it important to study 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 8? What would be something that you might say to someone? Why is this important? It's still, it's still going on today. I mean, worst case scenarios, literally lawsuits, but it was not that long ago that some churches were literally splitting based on mask or no mask. And I'm sure it happened. Some churches taking their leadership or whatever to court. But, you know, this is not, wow, 2,000 years removed. You probably know situations of people where there's disputes and hopefully it never escalates to a legal level because that's damaging, right? Like it's one thing, you know, think about your family. You have conflict, you have tension in your family. Maybe it's ongoing. Maybe there's a lot of dysfunction. That's heartbreaking. But if anybody takes that conflict in the family and pursues litigation, that's like another level, right? Like there's a lot of family and relationships that don't recover after you go to that level. Because part of what you're saying symbolically is, I value my rights more than this relationship. I'm literally willing to blow this thing up in order to enact justice, get, get what's mine, even if it's rightfully. And so this stuff still happens today. And so whether we're dealing with highly contentious, um, highly charged, situations, or even just conflict in the church, this is important for us to pay attention to. Because if churches, if we, let's just talk about us, if we don't learn how to move through conflict well, it really, really ruptures the sense of community, sense of connection. We all start playing it safe, going through the motions, walking on eggshells. It's just a very, very uncomfortable, toxic culture. But that's not God's intention for his people. God wants there to be unity 
and harmony. He wants his people to be working towards resolution. I've got a number of scriptures. I'm going to call them out. And if I call you, if you could just read them out as loud as you're able, that would be great. Um, Leviticus 19, 18. So some of you don't know that, that when Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting Leviticus 19, but the most direct application of Leviticus 19, loving your neighbor as yourself, is not seeking revenge, not bearing a grudge against among your people. Matthew 5, 9. Nice. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Colossians 3.13. Hebrews 12.15. Matthew 5, verses 23 to 24. First Corinthians thirteen, four to seven. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Nice. Deep breath, three more. James 1, 19 to 20. First Peter 3, 8 to 10. And lastly, Ephesians 4, verses 31 to 32. These are some of the New Testament commands and instructions, some from the old, mostly from the new, on the posture relationally we're to have with people that presumes disputes and relational tension, right? One of the truths that's sort of hidden in plain sight that it's easy to miss is that so much of the New Testament is written to believers because they don't know how to get along with each other. 
And there is relational tension. And Paul and God giving us these texts, no one is ever chastised for the fact that there's disputes or that there's arguments. It's not like, oh, you should never argue. There's not going to be disputes. It's always about how you move into them, how you repair from them, how you respond when those things rupture in your community. The only church that has no conflict is the church where almost everybody is lying to God and to each other. It's the only way you can do it. If you are being honest, then there's going to be places of tension. We don't want to be a church that is dishonest with God and dishonest with each other. And that means there'll be times where we'll raise concerns with each other, where there might be frustration, there might be a relational strain. Maybe both people feel it's justified. That's not the problem. The problem is how we go into that. You have a marriage, the only way you're never gonna fight in a marriage is if at least one person is not telling the truth. You have a close friendship, the only way you're never gonna come to any tension point is if at least one person is just trying to tell the other person what they think the other person wants to hear, to keep the peace. But real relationship, honest relationship, demands us to be ready for the fact that, oh, there's going to be relational fallout maybe. But that's not the end of the story. God actually equips us to repair those connections well. Paul isn't shaming them for having arguments. He says, it's to your shame the way you've dealt with it. That is what is shameful. Remember, these were a group of people that earlier on, he calls them on the carpet because he says, you guys are posturing like you're super spiritual and super wise. And here he's like, you guys are full of such wisdom. You can't even navigate some of this stuff. You've got to bring it before like the, the courts of the land. Like you're so wise, but there's no one among you, not even one or two people that can actually figure out an amicable solution to this. So Paul is exposing the fact that real wisdom looks like not always avoiding disputes, but moving into them in a healthy and mature way. He's saying, you're just reflexively doing what the culture around you is doing. Getting revenge, defending your honor, bringing things into the light in order to walk away and say, see, I'm in the right. Honor, shame goes to that person. Paul says that's not the way Christianity is supposed to play out in your life, especially between believers. Paul's conviction is that Christian remediation, Christian conflict resolution is going to look different. It might still be filled with uncomfortable, difficult conversations. But the gospel's truth and power has a direct bearing on how we um, deal with internal fights and uh, arguments and even injuries. Now let's pull back a little bit and say, okay, but, um, well, from the passage, let me, let me put it this way, from the passage, why is Paul so worked up about this? I mean, you could kind of make the argument, it, it's an issue, but there's stuff coming down the pipe that he's going to talk about that for us feels much more relevant to call out first. But he's actually jumping into this. And he uses very strong language why is this so important to him, given what you've known, or, or maybe what you, what you know or what you learned even this morning about how the structure of this legal system works? 
why is Paul pressing into this so hard and wanting to redirect them? Can you think of any reasons why this is really key for Paul that they get right? What are the consequences of it not going right? So huge one. It's a terrible witness to the Christian faith, right? You have a new group of Christians who are genuinely filled with the Spirit. They've been saved from sin's penalty. They are trying to cooperate with God to live into the vision laid out by Jesus. By his grace, it's not a self-help project. It is reliance on Christ. They are inviting people into that community. They are sharing with people the good news that in Christ, people can be reconciled to God. People can be gifted with eternal life. You can have a new lease on life now that continues on forever. Hey, we're going to be gathering in my home. Um, we gather every Sunday, not gathering this Sunday, but would you want to come and join us, learn about Jesus? Oh, why aren't you gathering on Sunday? Well, I'm, I'm taking Rob to court, so I'm not available. We're not available to meet on Sunday. But after that, if you want to come and then um, learn about the good news and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, that would be awesome. Right? Now, again, this is not a call to say, well, we should sort of curate our image and pretend to be something that we're not. Paul isn't saying that. But he is saying how you live impacts what people think of Jesus and the gospel and faith, right? One of the first commands, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not carry the name of God in a way that's um, powerless, that shows no regard. And Paul's like, you carry the name of Jesus. You carry the name Christian. And you have to be aware of how that is going to play out publicly. Because it's a public thing. It's not even like you're going behind closed doors and it's just a few people in the courtroom. It's spectacle. And some commentators even say it was sort of like the original Judge Judy, where you would have people sitting around the public um, sophistry and, 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 and attacks and defense because it was entertaining. Right? You know if you've watched some of those courtroom drama shows, it is entertaining. And people use this as a kind of entertainment. But Paul's like, we have to be very careful as Christians, right? There are, and I, this is not easy. It's not easy when your honor, your reputation, when you maybe are going to have to take an L. I've had to do that in my life. I've had people say things online, right? There's no like market square, but like the internet is the court of public opinion. And I've had, I've had people say not so veiled things about me online. And I've had people reach out to me and say, aren't you going to say something? And I'm like, no. They're like, why not? And I'm like, 1 Corinthians 6, I'll take the L, I'll take the public reputation hit and then try and deal with it constructively behind the scene. That's hard to do. I know many other people who have done that. Paul says you have to guard your witness as a church. You don't have to be perfect, but we do need to be different. What's another reason maybe why Paul sees this as so important to get right as an expression of their faith in Christ? So public witness, anything else? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Paul's like, the world around you is tallying and keeping score. He's going to say in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. 
But in Roman culture, that's exactly what you do. You keep a record of wrongs, and then you air out that dirty laundry in front of other people. And he says, you've got to be different. You've got to be a community that is willing to forgive. And part of what forgiveness means is the results aren't fair. Because if I forgive someone who's wronged me, I'm saying I'm not taking vengeance against you. I'm not going to litigation. I'm not saying it was okay, but I'm choosing to be at peace with you. And forgiveness means I put down the sword and I absorb the cost to my reputation, maybe to my wallet, something else. And Paul says you have to be a people that are willing and eager to forgive because God in Christ forgave you. God, Jesus came, hung on the cross, took the, the ultimate public L, the ultimate public loss that you you should have taken and gave you his righteousness, his grace, his forgiveness, that only really he, that he was fully entitled to keep for himself. You've been a recipient of grace. You need to extend that grace to other people. And to go along with that, Paul talks about the fact that you've got to be willing to put relationship over your rights. Isn't it better to be wronged in some circumstances? Like, really? You just want to get into an arms race in your marriage where you're just constantly escalating? There's tension and you're arguing. And who can yell louder? Who can give more of a cold shoulder? Who can be more acrimonious and more passive-aggressive? No. Paul says at some point, you have to learn how to break that cycle. You do it through forgiveness and peacemaking, which we'll talk about next week, not peacekeeping. They're very different things. But Paul says, I want you to avoid legal disputes. I don't want you getting up in front of everyone under this Bema seat. I want you to figure out how to forgive and love and care for each other and to extend grace, even if that's going to cost you money, reputation, status. You need to live differently. To a Roman, if you get slighted, your immediate question you've been trained to move into is, how do I avenge my, uh, that, that, that slight. How do I protect my honor? How do I come against those who have attempted to blight me? Paul says, in a sense, the question the Christian asks right away is this, is, this is painful, this is injurious, this is very damaging maybe. How can I glorify God in this situation? How do I glorify God in this situation? How do I move into this and through this in a way that brings glory to God and is genuinely reveals the character of Jesus to those around me. Now, that's hard. And you know that if you've had to walk into any kind of a challenging conflict in your life. But that's a standard that we're called to. We have to prioritize love and righteousness in our interactions, and we have to be humble. Paul is convinced and you see it in every page of the New Testament, that Jesus' life and power in us gives us a new pattern. It gives us a new pattern through which to resolve conflicts. It doesn't erase them. It doesn't minimize them. It doesn't sweep them under the rug. It doesn't mean that we play peacekeeper and say, oh, it's not a big deal. We'll just forget about it. No, it brings everything into the light. But Paul says to the Corinthian church, I want you to understand that following Jesus means a different approach to resolving conflict. I want you to draw upon God's wisdom. I want you to learn what it means to be a peacemaker. 
who genuinely know how to build shalom into relationships that were ruptured. Now, next week, I want to talk about how to practically resolve disputes and conflict within the church, but it's going to have broad application, marriages, friendships, family relationships. It's going to be helpful for any situation. But this is your homework this week. Your homework this week is to say, where is there conflict in my life? Where is there a relationship of ongoing tension? And the only thing I want you to do this week is I just want you to pray for that person. I just want you to pray for that person or persons or the situation, but specifically for the person that if you're honest to God and honest with yourself, you're like, I really wouldn't mind if God sort of like put them in their place and got even with them. I want God to vindicate me in this situation by humiliating them. Whatever that person is, I want you to pray for them. Ask for God's blessing on them. If you don't know what to pray, just ask for God's blessing on them every day. But if there's something specific, pray for them. Pray that God would teach you how to be a peacemaker that glorifies him in that place of tension, pain, and strain. Moving, addressing conflict, naming it, dealing with it well is absolutely one of the most uncomfortable things to do. But it's such a mark of maturity and it just snowballs an enormous amount of health and connection when we do it God's way, with God's heart, with a spirit of humility and grace. So let's ask in preparation for next week that God would be preparing us for that. I'll invite the worship team forward.